0: Everyone, welcome to the Anti Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von and I'm here with my two co hosts, Irene Victoria Massimino and Hoshman Ismael. Our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. As we say, you can find us on our website at IraqProject.org. We are also on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. We are so lucky today to have with us here, Dr. Amy Beam, an expert on the Yazidi genocide and the author of the book, The Last Yazidi Genocide, which by the way, I highly recommend to our listeners. We will be speaking about the book, the genocide and Dr. Beam's work with the Yazidis today. So let us all take a moment to welcome
1: Dr. Beam. Welcome. Welcome, very welcome. I have to say that I'm, overly excited to have you here. So, but um, it's wonderful. Thank you so much.
2: Uh, Thank you for inviting me. I'm overly excited too. Uh, (laughs) Hoshman, Irina, and Elisa. We are in uh, four continents, I guess. So thank you very much. (laughs)
0: That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Um, And so I'm going to hand the interview over to Hoshman today. And he will be asking the questions. And Irene and I will interject when we have ideas or questions as well. So, Hashman.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm just uh, going through uh, some bio of Amy. And uh, she's our special guest today, Dr. Amy Beam. And she's been to Iraq for the last six years. And she worked very hard. She's been very brave, very courageous, very supportive. And she has her own organization she has written a book. It's an nonfiction book entitled The Last Yazidi Genocide. It's a book that everyone looks forward to reading it. It's a kind of a book that it's telling the truth. I've read it myself, and I'm admiring how, you, how bravely you are writing this book, Amy. And um, this is about, um, she's an American uh, activist, Amy, and who's been living with the Yazidis in Iraq. Um, which the Yazidis themselves were not able to return back to where Amy lived for the last six years. Um, And uh, doing humanitarian work for them since the Islamic State jihadists attacked them in 2014. She was sometime just by the front line. And ISIS uh, killed so many men, kidnapped um, nearly 7,000 Yazidi women and children. The females were used as sex slavery, Dr. Amy. Is the only foreigner who's been given one-year visa from Baghdad and permission to live in Shingal, which is a disputed territory in Iraq between the Iraqi government and the Kurdistan government in the north of Iraq. It was homeland to Yazidis, and the Yazidis, the main they are mainly living in those regions, and this is their ancestral land. Um, so when they were attacked, uh, um, I think soon after. Dr. Amy arrived to those areas. She has a vast, major knowledge of about Yazidis and the conflict in the region. I don't think we are able to um, cover that much today, but we, we skim through. Um, hopefully, we will come here back again on the show. And um, of course, um, uh, welcome to our podcast, Dr. Amy Bim. Um, I'll hand it to you now.
2: Please. Um, thank you, Hoshman. Um, About being courageous in my book, um, I like to tell people that it's the truth. It's the truth as I found it through talking to people. I use oral history. Uh, there's very, very little that I got from reading anywhere. And I tell people there's something in this book that will upset everyone, hmm. whether you're uh, Kurd, Yazidi, Arab, Iraqi, French, American of the United mm-hmm. Nations. There's some truth in here that's going to upset everyone because genocide is a very dirty business. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first page in my book is a photo. It's a photo that's uh, iconic among Yazidis and in Iraq. It's when the Peshmerga were leaving when ISIS was attacking on the morning of August 3rd, 2014, two soldiers are jumping in the back of a truck and leaving. They never did defend the Yazidis in Shangal. And there was an Yazidi uh, professor who was leaving Erbil Airport with my book. And when the officer, Kurdish officer saw that book, he took it from him and ripped it up in front of him. He was incensed. He was incensed that I would put that picture there, and many people said you won't be able to publish this book if you put the picture there. I said, no, that's the preface to how this genocide unfolded. It's certainly not the only reason, but this story can't be told without telling the truth. And throughout mm-hmm. every page in my book, there are things that will upset people, including Yazidis. Yeah.
3: Sure. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just about the picture, I mean, I, I can see that the picture is... Um, is uh, Taken is a, in a very sensitive time. Um, while some of the Peshmerga were leaving, some other Kurds were also, um, and the journalists were coming to um, help the Yazidis. Is that right? This
2: picture was a screenshot from a video clip. There yeah. was a journalist. There, a young woman who was in Rabia, which is just north of Shengal. It's the road to Kurdistan. With all the vehicles they were fleeing and uh, they were full of Yazidis but they were also full of the um, Kurdistan Peshmerger, these are the military forces, and she was going up to them saying why are you mm-hmm. leaving, why are you leaving?" and the Peshmerger said we have orders to leave mm. and part of that video is the screenshot, the camera pounds across all these vehicles leaving with Peshmerger mm-hmm. and that's that photo is part of the video with uh, Peshmerga
3: jumping into the back of a big truck. So yeah. I think she was Kurdish too, but later was killed, is it, by uh, Turkish side? I understand. I I underst-
2: she was Kurdish. I understand yeah. she was killed, but I don't know how she was killed.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, I That's never confirmed that she was killed, and I, I didn't know her. I, I wasn't there in Iraq on the day of the attack.
3: I was in Turkey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do do, do you have any idea, uh, Amy? I mean, it's very sensitive issue because it's like, like the kind of leaving of Peshmerga was very sudden to an extent that Mm -hmm. the Yazidis themselves, I mean, um, many times asked uh, the Peshmerga to protect them, but uh, suddenly they left uh, the Yazidis like from two o'clock in the night. Is there any way that you have in the last six years found out who ordered the Peshmerga to leave? Um,
2: I have different different ideas about it. I'd like to give you at least a little background because most people wouldn't know the geography.
0: Yes, Mm -hmm. thank
2: you. you. Picture the country of Iraq. Mm -hmm. To the north of Iraq is Turkey, to the east of it is Iran, and to the west of it is Syria. Shangal is the disputed territory where Zidis live and it borders Syria, so it's just a couple, it's on the border of Syria, mm-hmm. a couple of borders. Um So, Kurdistan is this semi-autonomous region of Iraq, and they have their own government structure but they're part of Iraq. In, 2000, uh, in June 9th of 2014, ISIS attacked Mosul, which is not in Kurdistan, it's in Iraq. And they took control of Mosul because it's predominantly Sunni, so they were actually welcomed, Mm because ISIS was Mm -hmm. a Sunni organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they moved uh, closer to Shingal to a city called Tel Afar, so they were within 20 or 30 Mm -hmm. miles of the Yazidis in Sinjar. And the Iraqi security forces or the Iraqi army were in Shingal as the defense force. They were headquartered in the city called Tel Afar, and they left like a week or two weeks after ISIS took control of Mosul because they were surrounded by ISIS, and they said they they couldn't defend themselves. So on June 14th, like five days after Mosul was taken, they got in their vehicles drove to Kurdistan, went to the airport and left. Wow. All the soldiers who were Azidis in the Iraqi security forces were told on June 16th by the Kurdistan government, the militia, to turn their guns in. Yes. They had three mm-hmm. days to show up in Sinjar city, mm-hmm. the, the capital city of Shingal, and turn their guns in. So they were disarmed. Mm-hmm. And then um, Kurdistan Peshmerger, went into Shingal to replace the Iraqi army. Mm-hmm. And they sent about 100 uh, Peshmerga forces from their Kurds and some Azidis also were part of Peshmerga. They sent about 100 to each village. They were mostly living in the schools and the villages were happy to have them there to defend them and they were bringing up them food every day. So that was the situation and the Azidis even though uh, they did get forewarning, some of them were forewarned the night before the attack to leave. They said, "We're not afraid. We've got Peshmerga here. Yeah. Peshmerga will defend yes, yes, yes. us."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and the picture in the front of my book has the Peshmerga loyalty oath, which says, "I will defend till my last breath."
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But they left. They they never they never had battle. They never defended. They left during the night. Um, and and this i've talked to azidis who were in Peshmerga, uh and they eventually left too they were the last person to leave they didn't get orders but everyone was gone so some people got orders and some just weren't in communication and they mm. didn't get orders mm. how high did the order go did it go to the president or prime minister of kurdistan mm-hmm. uh was it the american coalition force mm. Mm-hmm. There's no order, so this is why we need an investigation. Okay. So Prime Minister Barzani ordered an investigation, an interview with the two hundred Peshmerga generals after the retreat, and that uh, those interviews have never been made public. There's never been an investigation into why Peshmerga retreated. If Peshmerga had not retreated, probably this genocide would not have happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can understand that, how uh, complicated and complex the situation was at the time. And, um, but um, do you think um, the Peshmerga forces, uh, of course, I mean, they, they withdrew, uh, but they, they, they could let the Yazidis know. Um, but the Peshmerga themselves, when you say Peshmerga, because Peshmerga is used for the whole Kurdish army. But I think in that particular area, one party was in control of that area, and uh, some others came. Some others came also to rescue the Yazidis. So you know the kind of, and there was a kind of conflict between those who left the Yazidis and those who came to rescue the Yazidis. Both of them are from Kurds, but um, those who came to rescue the Yazidis from the mountain were the Kurds from Syria. Yes, that's right.
2: Um, The attack happened on August 3rd, 2014. It started at 2.10 in the morning, and it started from their Arab neighbors, about a 20-minute drive to the south of the southernmost Azidi village. It started from a city called Ba'aj. It also started from the direction of Mosul. These are one from the south, one from the Mm -hmm. east. Mm -hmm. And it also started from Syria, the northwest. So it came from three directions, the attack. Wow. But the first attack came from the south at 2.10 in the morning. And they were calling all night for reinforcements. The Yazidis had their own personal guns, those who had not had their military guns taken off of them. And they defended their village until 7 in the morning when they ran out of munition. They were trying to hold off Dash, mm. who were just like 100 meters away, um, so their families could get away to the mountain. Mm. So there was no one who came to the rescue mm. on August 3rd. Mm. There, no one came to the rescue. Um, there, by, by morning, by 1 in the afternoon, all the Zidis in the entire region of Shangal were gone. That's is about 75 miles long. Mm-hmm. In the middle is a mountain, and it's surrounded on all sides by a flat plain where they grow the wheat. They're the breadbasket for Iraq. So um, by one in the afternoon, uh, less than 12 hours, it was empty. The whole region was Gosh. empty.
0: Hmm.
2: Most of them were able to get in their cars and go to Kurdistan, the safety of Kurdistan in the north. But those who didn't have cars or were besieged, the road was closed by ISIS, so they couldn't mm-hmm. get over the mountain safely. They walked to the top of the mountain, Shingal Mountain, and it's a very, very hard mountain. I yeah. yes.
0: mean, mm-hmm.
2: this is not something you easily walk up. Um, it's high, it's rocky, it's steep, it has ravines and gullies. Yeah. There were over a thousand people who died on the mountain. They were besieged for nine days. And then the uh, President Obama ordered an airstrike on Mm. August 9th. Uh, And then between the airstrike and the Kurds from Syria, they are called the YPG, that's the men, and YPJ, that's the women, and -hmm. they're Kurds, Syria. They opened the corridor on the ground and the Yazidis walked off the mountain. Mm. Uh, When then they got to Syria, And then they were taken in cars to the safety of Kurdistan. And about 25,000 of them kept going. I have friends, he said, when I was carrying my baby on my shoulders and holding my two-year-old's hand, walking to Syria, I told my father, we've been attacked too many times over the years. I'm going to Europe. I'm not stopping until I'm Mm. in Europe. I want you to come with me. I'd like you to come with me, but Mm. whether you come or not, on to Europe. That family was one of the early ones. They kept going. And mm. they now have asylum. They have a German citizenship now mm. in Germany. But since then, Germany's denying asylum. Mm. So they came over the mountain into Turkey that first month. And that's where I encountered them because I was retired living in South Turkey. I uh, encountered my first exibis September 3rd. 2014, they've been walking for one month, and the first words I found, everyone, hundreds of people told the same thing, unprompted, Peshmerga left us, and PKK saved us. PKK is the the Turkish group for YPG, their associated parent group.
0: Thank you Thank so you. much Thank for you. that. Yeah. Um, I, I just yeah, wanna ask a quick question. Yeah. What sort of um what sort of intelligence did did people have about this ISIS attack or this Daesh attack before on Sinjar before it happened? Do you know anything about that? When Ireno and I were in um Sinjar, Shengal in 2016 and visited the IDP camps. We heard the same thing, mm-hmm. that the Peshmerga left and the PKK saved the Yazidi. Um, and we also heard that it was a surprise attack. And we heard that, we heard, um, we were told by Kurdish officials that um, they were unaware of the attack, that they were taken by surprise and they weren't prepared. And that was sort of the story the official story that was being told at the time. But as you describe it, this was an attack coming from three different directions. It seems planned and orchestrated. And with satellite imaging and uh, the ongoing war in Syria at the time, it seems to me that it's something that could have been seen ahead of time. And so I'm wondering, what do we know about that? Who knew about this?
2: It's a good question with a long, complicated answer. Yeah. I do have a long, the longest chapter in my book is the genocide was a plan.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I try to walk people through it in steps. I'll try to give a, a very short tip of the iceberg answer to that.
0: Thank you. Um,
2: I, I was told that uh, a couple months before, there was a meeting in Amman, Jordan. I think that was May 13, 2000. Fourteen, maybe it was May twenty-third, uh, and there were different countries there: uh, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Turkey. I was also told, and actually given the name, that was there was someone from Kurdistan, the political party in power called PDK. I wasn't at the meeting. I don't have confirmation of that, so I'm not going to say the person's name. Um, but this is rather uh, widely rumored among Azizis. Mm. We never knew the result of that meeting, although the fact that there was a meeting was public knowledge. Right after that meeting, uh, within days after that meeting, is when Mosul was taken. So the theory, the working theory, and, and we need investigations to know if it's true, but the working theory among Azidis is that Kurdistan could have Shangal. They want to be an independent country, and they could double its land territory and annex Shangal. Mm. If ISIS, the Sinis, could have Kirkuk, Kirkuk ah. is also disputed. It pumps oil, it's That's where the oil's coming from. So the ISIS, to have their uh, sharia, religious caliphate, they needed a source of income. They Mm -hmm. needed oil. Hmm. So this is the working theory. ISIS could have Kirkuk if Kurds could have Shangal. I want to point out that ISIS never tried to, and they never tried seriously to invade Kurdistan. They did not attack the Kurds ever. Hmm. They did attack the Arabs, Sunni Shia Arabs. They attacked all the non-Muslims in the rest of Iraq, but Kurdistan never came under attack. So that's um, the theory, and that's why we need like a tribunal. We we need yes. probably years of investigation to get to the bottom of this. Yes, these are classified secrets, but right. governments governments know their secrets. Yes, uh, the United States. Wanted to um, remove the leader of Syria, Assad. Yes. And so they funded first. We know the U.S. funded um, Al Qaeda, going you know Taliban, going back to the war in mm-hmm. Afghanistan, and then they funded Al Qaeda, which was an outgrowth of Saddam Hussein's political party called the Baath Party, and out of uh, Al Qaeda came ISIS, the yeah. Islamic State. And they were trained with some was U.S. money, the CIA money. There was no, I don't know if there's any debate about that anymore. They were trained in Jordan. Hmm. Um, And their mission was to defeat the elected president, I don't know, president or prime minister of Syria, Assad. Yeah. Like most plans hatched by CIA to overthrow other governments in the world, which they've been doing since 1953 in Iran. Yeah, that plan didn't yeah. work out according to plan. Yeah, ISIS morphed mm-hmm. into a very uh, barbaric, vicious organization based on this uh, fundamentalist, extremist Islamic thought that they were going to convert everyone in the world to Islam. Yeah. So that's the big picture. The little picture is on August second. There were meetings in Ba'aj at night, around 10 o'clock at night, between 10.30 or 11 at night on August 2nd. The um, Arabs who lived in Ba'aj, just half an hour away from their Azidi friends, began to call them up on the phone to get in your car and run, because the meeting has just ended and we are on our way to attack you. Oh my God. So I've talked to several people who got those phone calls. And mm-hmm. one person called the commander, the Peshmerga commander, and says, don't worry. We've got more Peshmerga on the way. Just stay there. Don't run. Another man called all his friends in a half dozen villages and said, run. They're on the way. And they said, we're not afraid. Uh, Peshmerga's here. They're mm-hmm. defending us. Mm-hmm. We're just going to stay. So he got his family left, but other people. We're not as lucky because they they couldn't believe that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. The uh, the general uh, Kasim Shesho he's a general in Peshmerga. He'd been all his life devoted to Curtis Peshmer, and Peshmerga, and he was a general. He told me we never expected the attack to be so vicious. Mm-hmm. One day I'm going to go back and ask him, what did you mean by that comment? Did you know the attack? Yeah. Was coming?
0: Yeah. yeah. But
2: at the time I interviewed him five years ago, it didn't seem like a politically correct question to ask
0: him. <laughs> Wow.
1: Anyway.
3: Yep. Yeah.
1: Amy, Irina, I have, do you want
3: to say
1: something? Yes, I just wanted to ask you a question. You know, Amy, you've probably experienced this as well. When Elisa and I were in two thousand and sixteen, we heard this version. You know that the Peshmerga pull out. That actually they end up shooting some people who wanted to stay, and um, no, who were trying to flee.
0: Who were trying to flee.
1: flee. People who were trying to flee, exactly. Thank you, Eli. Yeah, exactly. People who were trying to flee. So it does look like people knew something or that something was about to happen, at least some people. On the other hand, when we went back in 2017, the discourse was completely different. Uh, Not that you see the discourse, but mainly the people in the Kurdish region were trying to make us understand as if we had never been there. That the Peshmerga stayed and protected these people, and that never happened. So, my question is might be kind of obvious what happened in between that sudden change of official discourse in, in the Kurdistan region mainly? And what was the investigation done that you mentioned before, or if there was any investigation, and how do you think? eventually, I mean, these are too many questions, sorry, but how do you think eventually we will find some actual information on what happened to actually try the responsible people? Because it does look like ISIS is not the only responsible people for the genocide. It looks like there are people maybe in the government, maybe in the military that are responsible for this as well. So that probably is one of the biggest concerns. How, okay. How let, find me,
2: the let me. You raised uh, quite a few extremely important points. I'll start first by to clarify those who were killed. Yep. Um, there were three Azidis who were killed mm-hmm. in Zorova, which is a Azidi village on the north side of Shingal Mountain. They uh, knew that Peshmerga was leaving. It was now morning. They could see they were leaving. Mm-hmm. They went to the checkpoint on the road, the main road on the north side of the mountain, where Peshmerga was, and they said, "Would you please at least leave us the guns?" Mm-hmm. Remember, I said yes. all the guns can collect. Yeah. Exactly. So they That's had true. they had yeah. several trucks full of guns, mm-hmm. and they said. At least leave us the guns. Mm-hmm. They were our guns that we turned in. We want our guns back. And mm. one person on top of a truck with a gun on a tripod turned his gun and opened it on them. Oh um, he killed, three people died, two right on the spot, one in the hospital, one's injured. Mm. And, and mm. I, you know, I know them. I was told this story by witnesses who were there. And that's part of my book. And that's actually why this story got out. Because people told me this story, so ah. that's to clarify that. Okay. That is to clarify great. that. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's great clarification. Now, mm-hmm. um, in terms of, I, I want to also clarify about Commander Kasim Shesho, who was, who is an Azidi in the Kurdish Peshmerga, and he spent his entire career loyal to the uh, political party that's in control, PDK. Um, that's um, Party Democratic Kurdistan.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, he did not leave. According to a journalist, and it was published, and I put it in my book, he was in the meeting at 10 to 7 in the morning on August 3rd. There were several other generals there, and they were taking a very quick decision whether they should leave or not. And they decided they would leave. This is the journalist's account. He was in that meeting. Mm. And he named who was in that meeting. Costume Shesho said, at least leave me the heavy armament. You know, the mm. trucks with the the mortars, uh, yes. yeah. the weapons on. And they said no. They took everything. So he was left with nothing. So he went from the south side of the mountain over the mountain. His car broke down. I have witnesses who saw him in his... Um, Peshmerga truck with his wife and kids
0: hmm. being
2: towed 9.30 in the mountain. And he went to the north side to a place called Sherfadin. That is a religious uh, um, temple site for Azidis, And he was born in the house above that site. So he basically went home. Hmm. He has never left Shangal. He has maintained his presence ever since then. Wow.
3: So, Sorry, I mean, um, is that Haider Qasim Shoshua?
2: That is Kasim Shesho, and I'm glad that you asked, because there's lots of Sheshos.
3: Yeah. Um, It's a very common and many of them
2: are military. So you have to be very careful in identifying which Shesho you're talking about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Haider Shesho is often called his son. He's not his son. He's his nephew. Haider Shesho was living in Germany. He has German citizenship and his family lives there. Haider Shisho immediately came back to Iraq, to Shangal, and he got volunteers. um, Well, he got a very small force of volunteers. People, Azidis got their families to safety in Kurdistan and turned right around and went back to fight ISIS with with Haider Shisho. Mm -hmm. And he had a small force. It wasn't until... I think it was two thousand sixteen that he finally opened up his headquarters near near Shafreddin, and he has six thousand Yazidis under him. One thousand are active and five thousand are waiting in case they have to be called up. And they are the one thousand are on small salaries. Haider Shesho, even though he's the nephew of Qasim Sheshu, when I asked Qasim Shesho with his eight thousand Peshmerga forces who had left. They were now in Kurdistan. They yeah. were in Kurdistan. The yeah. attack was finished. I said, Qasem, do you ever think that your forces can be merged with your nephew's forces, right. with Haider Shesho's forces, as one united front? And he said a very telling thing to me. He said, no, it's impossible. It can never happen. I said, why? He said, because we are not free to act independently we are controlled by external forces and mm-hmm. other governments Wow! Yeah, and we depend on the funding for our weapons and our food mm-hmm. you know you have to you have to live you got eight thousand people yeah. you need money Absolutely. every single day to feed eight thousand people so um mm-hmm. i asked him the same thing and i didn't prompt any of them they said no we, we can't join forces because he was getting different funding Haider hmm. went all over. He went from Russia to South Africa and to Iran. The only country that would offer arms to Haider Shesha was Iran. Wow. He took he took the arms, yeah. And yeah, then course. he he switched he switched uh, let's we'll say loyalties a few times because mm-hmm. then Kurdistan said, "Okay, we'll support you." So the next thing you know, he was with Kurdistan pushmaker. um it, It's it's very complicated because mm-hmm. the ZDs are not wealthy.
3: They don't yeah. have their
2: own internal power. They must mm-hmm. answer to external forces. Yeah. Why did the uh, story change mm-hmm. to 2017? Yeah. That Peshmerga left because all of the Zedes went to Kurdistan. Maybe. Uh, Twenty or thirty thousand didn't leave Shangal. They mm-hmm. put their tents on the mountain and lived there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but three hundred and sixty thousand went to the safety of Kurdistan. Kurdistan has never had war. When the U.S. military was occupying Iraq from two thousand three to two thousand eleven, there was never war in Kurdistan. It's very safe. It's like suburban Washington. D.C. see it as shopping malls and gated communities and water fountains and restaurants. It's a lovely place to live and it feels safe. So there was never war there. But when all those uh, displaced Azizis went to Kurdistan, they opened up more than a dozen camps for the Azizis.
0: Mm-hmm. And they're
2: still living there. When you are living in a camp, in a tent, and you are dependent upon the government for food in a mm-hmm. tent to live in, you really do not have free speech. Yep. So the Kurds were determined to, uh, we'll say, cancel out this story, delete every yeah. website, every story, every yeah. photo. Um, they There were journalists who disappeared. There were journalists who were picked up in the middle of the day, one man in Dohok. And two days later, his family was told where they could pick his body up on the oh, side of the road. No. Oh, dear. It became very dangerous to talk about who ordered the Peshmerga to leave? I call it the most dangerous question in Kurdistan or Iraq. So I was reluctant to even ask the question. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm not afraid to ask the question. I Seven years and we need to have an answer to this yes, question. Yes, yes, yes. But that silenced all the Yazidis and they're still silent. Because they're still dependent upon living in those Kurdish-run camps in Kurdistan. They are not free to speak. Truth. Mm-hmm. I speak the truth for them and they say to me every single day, thank you, Amy, for telling me the truth. And Kurds say thank you to me also. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. not all the Kurds support the political um, policies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to say something about Peshmerga now. Um, there's at least 8,000 Azidis in Peshmerga. Peshmerga was like mm-hmm. reconstitute. Um, so you can't just you know, say they were all bad people, they ran mm-hmm. away, they ran away under orders. They were good people in Peshmerga, mm-hmm. with a military that simply fell apart in a matter of hours, with or without orders. To put that in perspective, when ISIS attacked Mosul June 9th of 2014, uh, two months before they attacked the Yazidis, Within overnight, the entire military of the Iraqi security forces disappeared. They they never fought. Mm -hmm. They got out Mm -hmm. of there. They literally took their uniforms off, put on their long Arab dresses and got in their cars and drove home. Literally. Mm -hmm. I've talked to many. Mm -hmm. There was no fight. Because Mosul was Sunni and Mosul welcomed ISIS. So there Mm -hmm. was no fight. Right. So that is why Qasim Shesho, based on that, could say, "I was, we were all surprised that it was so vicious, the attack. Right. Like 10,000 Azizis were killed or kidnapped on August 3rd in Shangal, unlike Mosul, where there were 67 people killed in total. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alice, did you want to say anything? Or?
0: No, thank you, Hashman. Yeah.
2: Uh, there's something else I'll add about the military yeah. that I'm sure people outside of Iraq would not know this and probably be surprised, as I was when I learned it. Um, the military forces are not loyal to the government. Hmm. The military forces are loyal to a political party. Mm-hmm. So you have PDK, who is a political party, is a political party, and they have PDK Peshmer,
0: yeah
2: loyal to them political leadership. You have P.U.K. Peshmerger mm-hmm. loyal to their political party right. that's headquartered in Suleimani, um, Kurdistan. And these two parties, they do not get along well. No. Yeah. So they're not loyal to a government. They're loyal to their political party. The Iraqi security forces um, were loyal to the Sunnis, to Saddam mm-hmm. Hussein's Nath mm-hmm. party. In 2006, when Paul Bremer came with American uh, forces, he disbanded disbanded the entire Iraqi military in one day. They were all Sunni. So tens of thousands of military Sunnis had no jobs. And then they reconstituted the military based on Shia, Shia Arabs. So there are many Sunnis who then would not join the Iraqi army because it was a Shia army, yeah and now we have all kinds of militias. they're each loyal to their own mm-hmm. leadership. Yeah. This is when we talk about sectarian division in Iraq. Mm-hmm. this is the main problem
0: definitely, That's
3: yeah, a- thank you, Amy. Uh, that's the, a
1: very important, no, sorry, I just wanted to say that that's a very important mm-hmm. clarification because when people think of a military like the Peshmerga or or any national military, they would think it's there to protect the people, like, right. no matter what. But it's not the case of Iraq. And I think maybe we take it uh, that we understand, but in general, people wouldn't understand the deep division that is in Iraq for either political views, religious, ethnicity or, or national Identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
2: there's a, there was a, uh, an agreement September 9th, 2020, just last mm-hmm. year, made between the Baghdad central government of Iraq and Erbil, which is the capital of Kurdistan. Remember, Kurdistan is part of Iraq. Right. But because they have this standoff, you know, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. So there was an agreement called the
3: Erbil-Baghdad Agreement.
2: Oh, and that October. agreement
3: was what to Im, Im, do. sorry Amy, it's October agreement you mean. October
2: the ninth. S- s- yeah. Um I thought it was September, but it, it, if you know it's October 9th. No, um, yeah, I sorry. have hundreds <laughs> of dates in my head. <laughs> yeah. At any rate, um that's the same agreement we're talking about. Yeah. Yes? And that agreement excluded the ZD's or the, any residents, Shia or otherwise. In Shingal, excluded them from the agreement, so it wasn't accepted because they mm-hmm. said you didn't come and ask us. But mm-hmm. one of the key parts of that agreement was that they would hire two thousand Azidis from the camps in, Sh- in Kurdistan and those already living in Shingal, those who'd stayed or returned, and they would hire them into the Iraqi security forces. Yeah, um, and the Iraqi police. Mm-hmm. So. They have been hiring them. The Yazidis say, we can't trust the Arabs. They left even before Mm -hmm. the Kurds left. We can't trust the Kurds. We need to have our own security forces. And the government of Iraq, the government of Kurdistan, the government of the U.S., everyone says, that's not going to happen. You will be integrated into a government security force. You are not going to have a purely Yazidi security force. These... Um contentious issues have not been clearly resolved yet, mm-hmm. but they have in the last half a year hired many Yazidis who have gotten out of their militia uniforms and put on the uniform of the Iraqi army of Iraqi police,
1: sure. and they
2: are in Shengla defending themselves.
1: I mm-hmm. mean... Amy- can I, I, I don't know how much, uh, well, I'm sure you know about the Christians as well, because this is also what we, we hear from the Christians, that they want their own specific protection because, you know, there used to be that many in the area of the Nineveh Plains, and there are so few left, um, not massively killed recently as the Yazidis, but also suffering the same persecution and they've mentioned to us as well in 2016 and 17 that they they need that sort of security you know human security and their own um their own military
2: um the christians there were christians living in sinjar mm-hmm. we'll tell your listeners it's sinjar is the arabic word for shingal the kurdish word yeah it, they're exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. But there's a region called Shangal or Sinjar. Mm-hmm. And there's a city called Shengal or Sinjar. Mm-hmm. For a distinction, those people living in the city, which is the main city, it's really a big town, on the south side of the mountain, they call it Sinjar, the Arabic word. Huh. And they call the whole region Shangal. So I use this as a distinction also in my book. It's a big region with dozens and dozens mm-hmm. Villages and there's one town called Sinjar. Sinjar. Yeah, Sinjar. So um, I make that distinction. Um, now I've lost my thread. What was your question?
1: You were talking no, about, about the question. Christians. Yeah, the Christians. A the similar Christians. situation yeah. with the so Christians. There were some yeah. Christians. There were Christians living
2: in Sinjar city. Yes. Um, there were not Christian neighborhoods in this area called Shingal, the big region. All the little villages were Azidi or Arab. The Christians were mostly living in Mosul, mm-hmm. which is to the west of Shingal, and some other, Karakosh, and I don't know all the other towns, um, which is just on the border of Kurdistan and Mosul mm-hmm. in that region, and also south of Mosul. Mm-hmm. So the Christians, uh, we're not generally integrated with the Yazidis, though there were some living in Sinjar, and I have not followed their cases closely, mm-hmm. but they have gotten more attention because of the visa issue. When people, uh, NGOs, humanitarian organizations, want to come and help rebuild, they have it's virtually impossible to go to Shingol, the Yazidi regions. Mm-hmm. Because of visa restrictions and, and military restrictions, but it's reasonably easy to go to the Christian towns. Huh. So they are ending up getting the majority of the attention, even though they were just a minority compared to Zidis. They're getting their schools rebuilt and churches rebuilt, and they're getting funding through USAID and other organizations because it's easy to get there.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you, Amy. It's uh, a very extensive uh, context, uh, context for the conflict, uh, in terms of the conflict yeah. and how this led to the genocide. But uh, now we, I want to move on the, the actual uh, crimes committed against the Yazidis. And um, before uh, we move on to what has been done about it, uh, and. Uh, whether there is an investigation, whether uh, could be any tri- tribunal or codes or anyone has been indicted about this. So if you, I know it's very emotional um, and uh, it's difficult, sorry, to talk about it because especially related to children and women. Um, but it's, it's, it's really important because uh, what you have done is because you have feared about those very horrible stories. So even if you just touch upon them will be great, um, please.
2: I will. I have uh, one of the final chapters in my book. I think I call it Making Lists. All this human tragedy and personal emotion gets boiled down Mm -hmm. to a sentence or a paragraph in the end, like all genocides. We talk about the Jewish Holocaust, six million Jews Killed during World War II. Full stop. That's how the misery gets summarized. So, to summarize the Yazidi genocide, there were 360,000 people living in Shengal and they got displaced in one day. They went to Kurdistan. Between 7,000 and 10,000 were killed or captured, both on August 3rd and again on August 15th. Because there was a village, Kocho and Hatamiya, who were besieged for those twelve days. Then they were actually the men were killed. Um so that comprises several thousand men were killed, nearly six thousand women were captured and enslaved. Now I'll give you a little detail about that. Um the ISIS categorized the Yazidis that they captured and they did different things with different subsets of Zidis. The Zidi boys and men who were captured were given the choice to convert to Islam or be killed. None of them converted and several thousand Zidi men were killed. Those who were captured and not killed were then forced to convert. Even after they converted, they were still being killed Um, days or months after? The women were captured, and they were all in one big group, the young women, the old women, and all the children and babies. And then after they were captured, they were subdivided. There were about 79 elderly women who were killed the next day. They were just too old. Mm. Um, That's in Sola Institute, and that grave was excavated. They took the young infants from their mothers. Babies milk nursing at their mother's breast and children, I would say under two or three. They took many of them and they put them in the school in Tel Afar, which was one of their headquarters. And they sold them. They put notices out. They sold them for $500. So there were many couples um, from nearby towns, Mosul, who like anywhere in the world, they're a couple and they can't have children, they want a child. Oh. They said, great. They went and bought a child. They gave it a Muslim name and they were raising these children. These are the missing children. Some of them have been identified by odd birth, remarkable birthmarks, and they've been returned, identified through DNA testing to who they belong to, their real parents. But uh, many of them will never retrieve those are the little children. The boys who were between like age six to 15, they were sent to jihadi training. And they ended up mostly in Syria, Raqqa, Syria and other Mm -hmm. towns were getting their training um, to follow ISIS, to become ISIS or Daesh fighters. Now I've talked to some of these boys who did escape as teenagers, they now have asylum in Germany. They're lovely young men. And I will tell you that most of that training was not service hmm. military training. They did a lot of calisthenics. Many of them, or most of them, had uh, imitation rifles made of wood. They were not really rifles. Um, and they read the Quran hours in the morning, at lunch, hmm. at night. If you weren't doing something, you had to have the Quran open, memorizing it. So they were brainwashing them like that to believe that their people, their parents and families were um, kufrs, what we call kufrs, infidels, Mm non-believers. So they were brainwashing them. But what they were really using these boys for was suicide bombers. Um, I do know the family of one, the two boys who are 11 years old, 11 and 12. And uh, ISIS made a dash propaganda video, and they put it online, an aerial view, I guess from a drone view, of the boys getting into their vehicles, saying goodbye, and then you have the aerial view of them driving through a city and exploding. Big, big explosion.
1: Oh, my God.
2: And their older brother is living in Lincoln, Nebraska. I didn't know when I posted the story that he didn't know it was quite terrible for him and all the Azidi men who've already got us in lincoln nebraska gathered in his house oh i can hardly tell you the story it it was very horrible oh terrible sorry
3: to remind you all this
2: so those are the suicides that we know of Mm. but for the missing ones we do Mm. think from the stories of people who did get free we do know that more were used as suicide bombers and not Mm. just the boys but Men that they captured too. Yeah. They strapped him over the vest. One man was strapped with the vest, sent to Shingle Mountains, it exploded, he turned around and came home, said I can't do it. They said, Okay, that's no problem. They beheaded him. Oh my oh god.
0: My god. Yeah.
2: So,
3: yeah, so that
2: was one group. Now we come to the hardest group of people. Yeah. The the young well, wait, I'm gonna save the young women who were raped to so the last group to describe. There were the young mothers who were able to keep their children, especially girls, they were two or three or four years old, and uh, some of them were able to keep their children. And they were given uh, to just one ISIS man, like one of the women beyond her stories in my book. Uh, she was forcibly married, I use that, euphemistically: married, raped by the governor of uh Tal Afar. Um, and she was only given to several men in the course of eight months. Um, So she was not widely passed around, and she was able to keep her kids because the threat was, if you don't allow me to have sex with you, I'm going to send your kids to Raqqa, Syria, and you're never going to see Uh them again. Mm. This is how they controlled the married women with kids. They controlled them through their children. Mm -hmm. The single women were treated much more harshly. In the first, when they were gathered in the school and sorted between married and single, the first person to come was a prince from Saudi Arabia because ISIS wow. commanders were from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Saudi Arabia is uh, a Sunni. It's the homeland for extremist oh. uh, fundamentalist Islam called Salaf. Salafist School of Islam It's very experienced. And the leaders came from Saudi Arabia. There were people from at least 30, if not 80, countries around the world who joined ISIS.
0: Mm-hmm. They were,
2: you know, through propaganda, and they came and they joined up. And they brought their families,
0: because
2: mm-hmm. they were going to get a free house, $300 a month, a woman for sex, uh, pills oh to keep high on and they could send their kids to Muslim school. So it looked like a good deal if you're some loser in Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) So they came, but the women that I interviewed who were captured said the only people who didn't bring their families with the Saudis, because for them, it was a military assignment. Mm -hmm. They were were leaders in ISIS Mm -hmm. and they were uh, espousing this extremist ideology. So the first person, the ISIS princess, came from Saudi Arabia, and he took 150 of the prettiest girls that that first day or the second day, and he left. So we don't know where all of them are. Maybe they are just disappeared into Saudi Arabia or beyond. There are about 2,300 Yazidis who are still missing. So these would be the very young children and the women that we can't find them. Hmm. So, you, that's it, you had the married women with the kids, you had the single women, the single women, uh, they tried to cooperate and not be sold and resold and resold, because yes. the threat was they would be sent to Raqqa, Syria, and yes. that was very scary for them, In Raqqa, Syria, they were put into houses and rented out for sex um, mm. by the day or the week you know, take her for a week and bring her back. They went through many, many men raped. And that's the hardest. Well, they've been coming back over the years. No government will help to return them. So the families have to borrow the money and raise the money themselves and buy them back through middlemen. It started out at the price of around $3,000. Mm-hmm. The Kurdistan government was helping to pay these costs. To return them and then the price went up slowly to seven thousand dollars the Kurdistan government was still paying after about three or four years and now that's like stopped the price escalated to thirteen thousand dollars and even more and Yazidis have been buying back their family members no government will help them
3: yeah it's a terrible story about this oh, this is yeah, they, yeah. Um, too much uh brought on them uh, in a very little while. But um, I don't want to take you more through this horrible, you know, time frame of the Yazidis and bringing back any anyone probably would like to uh, further research about this, maybe find more um, of Amy's book, Last the Genocide, and is available on Amazon. and. Uh, but, um, Amy, I, I just want you to tell me about, or tell us, uh, and tell our audience, uh, about um, what has been already done for Azid in terms of justice. Um, have they been saved at all, or is there any way that, um, I, I think there is an organization called UNITAD now in Iraq is set up uh, yes. under, the, under the Security Council Resolution. If you just um, yes. maybe... Yeah, Giving um, some yes, uh, I
2: definitely want to talk about UNITAD and the United Nations. Yeah. The United Nations uh, took two years to declare it a genocide. They did declare it a genocide in 2016, two years after the attack. And there's about a dozen other countries, mostly in 2016 and 17, who joined in and also acknowledged it as a genocide. Um, in 2000. Um, 18, they were fun. Uh, in 2017, the United Nations created UNITAD, that's United Nations Investigation Team um, in, into the crimes of Dash. Dash is the word we used in Iraq for ISIS. Dash. Um, actually, the title is a little bit longer, but that's UNITAD they were not funded until 2019 so they started in 2019 in iraq five years four and a half years after the attack Um, unitad was uh, given the mandate to investigate the crimes of genocide crimes against humanity and war crimes Um, but they were not given the mandate to set up uh, ICC tribunal. The mandate was to go to Iraq and work with Iraqi governments, and not just Iraqi governments, other governments, because you have ISIS who have escaped and are living freely in Europe. Um, that was their mandate. They have not had any prosecutions to date. The Yazidis are feeling disappointed. They were helpful when that was set up. Uh, they're very disappointed now. It's seven years and no prosecutions. Mm. No names even named, mm. No mm. trials. Started. The thing that they did do, they went to Cocho, this village that was attacked August 15, 2014, and all the men were killed and all the women and children were kidnapped. There were over 400 killed. They did excavate the 17... Grave sites in Cocho, and on February 6th of 2021, they had a memorial service and they buried them in Cocho. They also excavated the gravesite in Sola Institute where the 79 mm-hmm. women, elder women, were killed. They were mostly from Cocho. Other than that. Um, there were only 104 remains identified through DNA testing, or maybe they had an ID, you know, on their clothing, um, and the rest have not been identified. So, Yazidis, especially the women who got uh, uh, went to Germany on a therapy program,
0: mm-hmm.
2: their men are missing. They can't get any closure.
0: It's yeah. really hard
2: for the women to move on without a body. Should they get married again?
0: Yeah. Uh, mm.
2: Should they wait? Should they help their husbands still in Raqqa as a prisoner? Very hard for them to go on. Um, Now UNITAD, the head of UNITAD, is called Karim Khan. He was appointed uh, three years ago to be the head of UNITAD. And he has just a month ago been appointed to a new position as the chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Court in The Hague. That's the ICC. And that's a nine-year position. Um, he will make his six-month report to the United Nations Security Council on UNITED's work. He will make that on May 10th. And then um, he takes his appointment June 1st with the ICC. And there will be a new head appointed to UNITED. There's just a couple candidates' names who were being put forward and uh i've been i and many other organizations and activists not just all them, but lawyers and other activists have evaluated these candidates and we had a lot of zoom meetings with michael newton. it goes by mike mike newton,
3: mike newton um, yeah
2: yeah so mike newton has got a long a history of credentials. He's been working inside of Iraq and for Iraqi justice since 1991. Hmm. He helped set up the tribunals for Saddam Hussein, for the Anfil genocide atrocities, for Halabja, where um, five or 6,000 Kurds were gassed in one day by Saddam Hussein. So he He knows the international law and he knows genocide law forwards and backwards. Mm -hmm. He's trained a lot of the judiciary, uh, the judges and prosecutors over the years in Iraq. He's got 21 years of experience in the U.S. Air Force. He was a judge advocate. He wrote a lot of laws. Importantly, uh, Mike Newton has been involved in writing um, the uh, EC, Elements of Crime. Elements mm-hmm. of crime. Mm-hmm. This is the document that is the guideline for ICC and special tribunals worldwide into mm-hmm. genocide. It spells out in detail um, the standards of crime to be called genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. So he's an expert in this. Mm-hmm. And uh, his name, uh, the Yazidis have signed a long uh, petition, to Baghdad, central government, to the prime minister and president, recommending that he be appointed. Mm -hmm. And we hope that the UN will appoint him. That appointment will come out of the United Nations Office of Legal Affairs in New York. Mm. And we think that will come after Karim Khan has given his uh, six-month report to the UN on May 10th. We're hopeful. He promises that he will immediately move toward a special tribunal and prosecutions. The Yazidis have waited seven years. They don't want to wait any longer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Mike Newton, by the way, is a law professor from Vanderbilt University. Wow. Um, There's lots of information online about him.
1: Great. Wonderful. Great to know.
3: Yeah. Thank you very much, Amy. Um, You've uh, explored a lot today. And uh, really, there is, uh, I think, too much uh, is left for to cover. Um, but um, before that, um, I just want you to um, have maybe just overview of, uh, is there any, like, um, NGOs or maybe you have an NGO that you are are you working for the Yazidis and uh, in the last six years, what uh, uh, have you been able to achieve or bring to the Yazidi society in general?
2: Um, There's many NGOs that have uh, organized themselves, the Yazidis that have organized themselves. I did have an NGO um, out of Kurdistan. I registered in 2016. When I moved my base to Baghdad and Shangal, I don't work under that umbrella. Because most of what I do is advocacy work. Mm -hmm. And I like to clone myself, but I don't think I can be cloned. And (laughs) it involves networking and putting people together and building bridges and policies and meetings. So I don't need an NGO. I work with many NGOs. I do need money to do my work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've had one major project for six years, and that was getting passports, Iraqi IDs, and passports for those uh, women survivors and their children who returned from captivity. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten between 700 and 1,000 passports. I have to take them to six offices at least two times. They have to go before a judge to get custody of their children to proclaim their husband missing. Um, They have to get a police report. They have to get lots of documents before they can get the passport. And sometimes it takes a year Get those passports. Yeah. So, nearly everyone that I've gotten has gotten, uh, they're in Germany or Australia or Canada, and some of the interpreters who work for America, they're in the United States. That's my main project, and I've raised money for that through my PayPal account. Over the six years, and I still do that project. I still have families every week that need their passport. The waiting period for a passport is three and a half years. Yeah. If you're from the oh, wow. if you're from Dahoe, you walk right in. There's no waiting period. Mm. Only two weeks ago, the Baghdad central government announced there would be no more waiting period for Yazidis. So I'm hoping now they don't need me, that they can walk in and get their passport, but I have yet to see that in action.
0: Hmm. Um,
2: I take my donations, Uh, that's just one project, I have many others. Uh, I got 1,400 coats and distributed them last winter on the mountain, Um, and they were high quality used coats that were shipped in from the Middle East actually. And I did that with $3,000 in donations. So my projects are small in respect of humanitarian aid. I've helped many NGOs distribute their humanitarian aid because I'm there and they can't get there. So they trust me to work on the distribution. Um, The uh, way that people can donate to my projects is at PayPal. You need a credit card, but you do not need a PayPal account. You donate to a person's account name, and their account name is their email address. So my PayPal email address, which is my regular email address, is my name, amybeam at yahoo.com. And I do read all my email, so if people want to email me, they they can feel free to email me, amybeam at yahoo.com. Uh, maybe on your podcast you can type my name up. People can get the right spelling.
0: Absolutely, and, um, we will put all this information under the podcast for sure, as well as on our website.
2: Great. The book is for sale on Amazon.com, and Amazon will ship. I think anywhere in the world. It's in English, and I'm working on the ebook. I've been working on it for a year. Uh, it will have a lot of photos to document the history of this genocide. I do have a Arabic translation that I'll be uploading without the photos as an ebook book uh, in the next few weeks. Wow. The Arabic translation is finished, and I will go to Iraq. Again, I have to register it in Baghdad um, and then print it and publish it in Iraq and the Middle East in Arabic. Other translations in German and other languages are down the road. Some of the yeah. NGOs, there's one that's a uh, newly organized Yazidi Legal Network. It's more than 40 um, lawyers volunteering their time. They did get funding. They are based in the Netherlands, Yazidi Legal Network. Uh, I understand they have a new website. Um, there's one based in France, Voice of Yazidis. I work with very close with the voice of the Zidis. Um Farhad Shamo is an Azidi in Paris. He and his family got asylum. And we are working on getting asylum for the survivors in the hardest cases to go to France. France is being a little more welcoming now, so we are hopeful when the virus restrictions are lifted that we're going to again start sending families to France. Um, there's an uh, uh, NGO called YES, Y-E-S, that stands for Yazidi Emergency Support. And Narona in the UK, she's a nurse, she's organized that, and it's registered in Baghdad and Kurdistan, and they do work in Kurdistan and Shengal, mostly uh, medical, uh, work for mothers and pregnant women, and child-friendly spaces for the women's little kids Um, there's Becky Thompson her organization she's an American she lives in Kurdistan and she does a reading projects and she's done doing a medical project now that's very good it's a genetic disease P K U it's a rare genetic disease it causes brain damage and cerebral palsy you end up in a wheelchair uh, but with a special medical formula, you can stop the brain damage if you catch them when they're babies. She's got many doctors in the Ministry of Health from Baghdad on this project with her, and she needs funding. And her organization is called the Restoration Act. She's Becky Thomas Thompson. And she's on Facebook. All these people are on Facebook. Um, there's Youth Bridge. That's an Yazidi organization dealing with educational projects. They did have some funding from USAID. We're, I work with them, too. We're trying to get bigger funding. Um, so there's more. But I recommend that people who want to get involved, just get involved in a little step to begin with. Go to Facebook. Search for the Facebook groups with the word Yazidi, 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 Yazidi different spellings. And you're going to find dozens of Facebook groups. Join those groups. Follow the friends of those groups. I myself have 25,000 people who follow my public Facebook. It's under my name, Amy L. Beam. L for Louise, my middle name. Amy L. Beam. Uh, Anyone can follow it. And you will see all my other followers. We have developed huge, powerful networks around the world. And if you just... Help one Azidi or one family, if you can help one person. Because I personally have given up hope on the international uh, countries, Mm -hmm. uh, giving asylum or rebuilding Shangal. I've completely lost hope. We have to keep helping one family at a time. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. That's brilliant, brilliant, uh, Amy. It was a very comprehensive cover of... uh, the background of the conflict, and uh, the situation of Yazidis, and uh, too much. Uh, we don't want to keep you anymore here, <laughs> to be honest, because I think that uh, is one hour, 15 minutes, uh, and uh, we took too much of your time. Um, but I'm not sure if my, my colleagues have, uh, or my, my host co-host has any, any questions. Um,
0: Well, we have so many, I think, but Uh, I think uh, what we're going to have to do is have Dr. Dr. Beam back on. So Dr. Beam, we will have to have you back on for sure, um, so that we can dive a little more deeply into the many issues that you have raised today. Um, so we're looking forward to that, and I know our listeners will be looking forward to that as well. Irena,
1: do you have one last question? No, I don't want to. I don't want to make this question. But if if Dr. Beam ap- accepts to come back, I also would like to know how you got involved and a little bit about you as well, because I think you know you, you've shown to be an extraordinary courageous woman and and so committed to what you're doing that it's it's also nice to know the person behind the pro- all of these projects that you have. Um, I would
2: like to do mm-hmm. that. And of course, I will come back over and over. Uh, Great. I leave your listeners to this. You don't need permission. As I said, I I gave up the idea that I needed an NGO. I do raise enough money yeah. to do my projects. But more than money is connections. Mm-hmm. You don't need permission. I never asked anyone if I could go to Iraq. I showed up yeah. at 3.30 in the morning not knowing <laughs> one Person in Iraq. Amazing. Yeah. One, 24 hours before, I called my lawyer in Turkey. I said, do you know anyone in Iraq? Because I got a plane tomorrow. He put me in <laughs> touch with someone, and she called her friends in Erbil and said, there's an American woman showing up. You meet her at the airport. You take her home to your apartment. So And nice. you make sure you help her. Oh, so lovely. And that's how I got started. Because I know so Kurdish hospitality. I had that's a amazing. confidence in Kurdish hospitality <laughs> that they would help me find my way. And they did. Yeah. And I became really uh, well known and powerful in Iraq without permission. Yeah. You don't need anyone's permission to get started. You don't need a job. You don't have to apply for an internship. <laughs> yeah. You just need a, a computer at home to get mm-hmm. started. Yeah. And if you're really motivated, you need a plane ticket. Yeah. But just <laughs> Thank get you. started. That's my message. Just get yep. started. And you, like um, all three of you that I'm talking with, you will have your life sucked into this <laughs> and you will become <laughs> passionate about it for the rest of your life. True. It's an all consuming thing and it's extremely rewarding. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. 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 Thank That's a wonderful, wonderful advice to our listeners. Yeah. We endorse yeah. that 100%. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
3: Thank you it very much, wonderful. Amy, for your kind words, all right. especially I when, love I'm, you. Uh, when I'm you, Kurdish, man. and uh, we always love our guests, and we would like to appreciate all the people who support our cause, um, as myself, and um, I- we would love you to have you all the time in Kurdistan, and uh, anytime, you're very, very welcome, you're very welcome, and... Um, uh, I, I, myself, I'm sorry if you're there. at any point you've become and had any difficulty in those part of the area, but I don't think it was from the people, probably from the government was, or maybe from.
2: No, it wasn't the Kurds. <laughs> as I said, the Kurds—you can count on the Kurds for hospitality. You—you you don't have to know one person. No yeah. Kurd will let let you go by yourself. You need help; they're going to help you. They're going to yeah. say, "Come home and sleep okay. with my—you know—in so my family's house." So that's an absolute guarantee that the Kurds support all people who come to help them. The politics are a separate issue. We could have a whole podcast about politics, but I've always supported the Kurds. I will continue to support the Kurds um, for their rights, for their struggle, and for true democracy. I'll always
3: Mm -hmm. support the Kurds and the Yazidis. And I believe before 2014, you were living with Kurds in Turkey. Is that right?
2: I have, uh, I retired. Uh, I live on my pension, I'm retired. And I started a tourism business in Eastern Turkey, Kurdistan, Turkey, in Northeast near Mount Ararat. I do run a small tourism business for climbers to summit that mountain. It's one of the highest in the world. And all my partners are Kurdish and I still have that business. We still do it, those are still my partners. And I was living with Kurds in Southeast Turkey, Chernak, Turkey, when mm. ISIS attacked.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Unfortunately, the Kurds have had a, a hundred years of genocide. Yeah. And um, yeah. I was writing in support of Kurdish rights and exposing what the Turkish government was doing to the Kurds. And for that, I have been banned for seven years from Turkey for mm. my Kurdish mm. politics. Yeah. And it's mm. in the high court. I did win. After five years in the high court that I could have my visa, but Hmm. the government was given the right to appeal and the government has said, I'm a threat to state security. So it's now Hmm. seven years and maybe one day I'll be allowed back into Turkey, but I can still do more for Turkish and for Kurdish rights
1: outside of Turkey. Yeah, I'm I'm
2: working in Iraq now and I will always continue to write to work for human rights.
3: Yeah, Wonderful. thank you very much, Amy. Wonderful. You are, um, I would just say you have a sea of knowledge. Um, I can't say more than that. So uh, probably you have just uh, given us a little bit out of this. But um, this podcast um, is only a snapshot of Amy's vast knowledge of uh, what's happening in the region, especially after ISIS attacked Shangal and committed crimes against the Yazidis. We would love to have uh, you again, Amy, um, hopefully into uh, I'm going, to, as Elisa said, into more detail uh, about the political development and in the region and probably other crimes uh, committed by ISIS against uh, less powerful groups in the region. I'm sure that it was not against the Yazidis only. Uh, so, in the meantime, sh- uh, yeah. yeah. Let's make it soon.
2: Let's yeah. put it on our calendars yeah. and let's make it soon. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. Clear sure. that Thank for you. sure
2: listeners be interested in this and if you have yeah. it soon up there, they'll just click and go right on to the
3: next podcast. Yeah. The next in the meantime, I wish so you absolutely, absolutely. In the meantime, we wish you um, a good health and uh, best of success and uh, thank you very much for being with us, Amy. Yes. Okay, thank
0: you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We will have Dr. Beam on again for sure. Um, And we are the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast, and we are signing off for today. Stay safe. Stay happy. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.
3: Bye. Bye. Bye.